Well, good morning. I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there today. Uh, we are very grateful. I am very grateful for Al, my father, uh, and for all the other fathers that have fathered us sons and daughters. Uh, your guidance, your love, your model uh, is not taken lightly. So thank you for that. As we uh, continue this morning, we're going to continue our message through 1 Peter. So I do encourage you to look at 1 Peter 3. Uh, we'll be looking at 3, 15 through 17 today. And as you turn there, we need to remember that Peter clarifies what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God as we live among kingdoms on earth. We've already seen clearly in chapter 3 how to live out this kingdom lifestyle. Peter has called us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Pastor David has mentioned that generally, generally, if we live this good life, we will not experience any harm whatsoever. But it is very likely that there will still be people that come against us. There will be people that oppose us and persecute us as we live out our righteous life before them. In this section, Peter is calling us how to respond to suffering when people oppose us. Now, last week, David mentioned that we are not to respond with fear. We're not to be afraid of what they might say or what they might do, but we are to fear the Lord. We are to set apart the Lord as holy and trust in his caring control of our life, of all things around us. We devote our lives to his purposes, no matter the cost. In this section particularly, we're going to see that he calls us to respond. Uh, to respond with a ready defense. We're not to defend ourselves from harm's way. We're not to defend our reputation primarily. But we are to make a ready defense for the gospel message and the glory of our good and gracious God. Hear the reading of God's word now, 1 Peter 3, I'll start in verse 13. Now, to, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your eternal word. We thank you that you give us new life, that you revive us, that you restore us, and you renew hope in our lives by the preaching of your word. God, pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart willing to obey the truth of your word, that we would have a clearer grasp of Jesus, our Savior, and learn to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The early church was a community that had everything to hope for and nothing to lose. Their hope was anchored in the historical fact that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, and then to over 500 men and women, and some of them were even still alive at the writing of the biblical text. This certain hope of the resurrection moved the church out to risky mission. Christians were willing to lose it all to share this message of hope, 
with the broader world around them. They had everything to hope for and nothing to lose. But you see, hope can be a very dangerous thing. I mean, what happens in a community if they believe they have everything to hope for and nothing to lose? When they have everything to hope for and nothing to lose, they might be willing to give everything away no matter the cost. In the early church, the society threatened to kill Christians. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. The society threatened to rob and to take away all of their comforts. But they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. The society mocked them, harassed them. They slandered their name. They tried to put their name in the mud. But they had a new name, a name that could never be taken away or diminished. They had become sons of God, saints, and beloved ones in Jesus Christ. They could not be silenced by mockery. In a book called Evangelism in the Early Church, Michael Green says that there was no distinction in the early church between the full-time ministers and laymen and this responsibility to spread the gospel in whatever way possible. It was axiomatic that every Christian was called to be a witness to Christ, not only by life, but by lip. Everyone was to be an apologist, ready to give a good account of the hope that was in them. In other words, Real hope demands a ready defense. In our section this morning, we're going to see Peter instruct us about what is the content of this defense, what is the manner of our defense, and the suffering for our defense. First, we'll look at the content of our defense. The content of our defense, according to 1 Peter 3.15, is the hope in us and our reason for this hope. Look at the verse in 3.15. Peter says that when we suffer for good in the presence of others, we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy, to submit to his leadership. We are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. If the content of our defense is the hope in us, then God has first called us to live hope-filled lives. Peter has already showed us what this hope-filled life looks like, and it's a pretty radical form of living. He says, love your enemies. He says, bless them rather than repay them. He says, live lives of moral purity rather than sinful passion. When Christians live hope-filled lives amidst a suffering world that is often hopeless, we bring hope to present struggle. And as apologetic, Tertullian said that the early church was branded by their opponents as ones who care for the helpless and practice loving kindness. It makes us wonder how we're branded by our own opponents, how we're branded by the broader culture around us. Here's what Tertullian said. Listen to this. He says, outsiders say, look how they love one another, they themselves being given over to mutual hatred. The outsiders say, look how they, Christians, are prepared to die for one another, they being more ready to kill each other. Christians' hope-filled lives should stir curiosity about the hope that has filled them. What hope would motivate such a sacrificial lifestyle? What would this hope be that would draw us out of ourselves and into the community to love our neighbors? Michael Green says further about the early church. He says that that they made the grace of God credible by a society of love and mutual care, which astonished the non-Christians. This was recognized as something entirely new. 
It lent persuasiveness to their claim that the new age had dawned in Jesus Christ. You see, the community is asking a lot of questions about us Christians. They're asking about what motivates our loving care. But, you know, sometimes I get a little bit concerned that maybe they're asking, why are Christians so mean? Why are they so hate-filled rather than hope-filled? I mean, they were meant to look at our life and say, these people model the living Jesus who laid down his life for the good of others. If we live out this Christianity, they will ask many questions about our life. And the call to being a Christian witness is not just to give persuasive, heartfelt words, but persuasive, hope-filled lives. So how about us? Will we live lives of overflowing love that demands an explanation? Will Lynchburg be astonished by our hope-filled lives and ask about our hope? When we live it in our life, they will want to hear it from our lips. So as we demonstrate this hope in our lives, we must declare it. We must say things about this hope with our lips. And I think if we listen to the songs of our culture, we'll see that our broader culture, there is a lot of hopelessness spread throughout. On the weekends, my dad would pick up his favorite vinyl record, and he would play some blasting and booming blues song uh, for all of us to enjoy. My dad grew up in the blues. He loves playing harmonica, and even to this day, he will be out maybe to 1 a.m., 2 a.m., jamming uh, with his blues friends on the harmonica. And he taught me this song of the blues. He taught me this song of sorrow, of lament, this song of sadness, looking and longing for hope. He taught me all of these songs, and he pointed me to the real-life sadness that we see day in and day out. And he tried to teach me as much as he is able, as many of all of our fathers do, how to live in hope in the midst of struggle. He told me of guys like B.B. King, who told us the thrill is gone. He taught me about Muddy Waters, and, and in Muddy Waters' song, you hear the groan of his voice when he says, Woman, I'm troubled. I be all worried in mind. Well, baby, I just can't be satisfied, and I just can't keep from crying. He told me of Howling Wolf, and Howling Wolf speaks of the evil of an affair. He calls us to watch our happy homes. He played T-Bone Walker, and T-Bone Walker talks about the sadness of the whole week. He says, Monday is stormy, Tuesday just as bad, Wednesday is worse, and Thursday is also sad. The eagles fly on Friday. The Saturday, I go out to play. Sunday, I go to church. I kneel down and pray. You see, our culture is asking questions about hope. And they firmly believe there is not any hope to be found around us. So what do we do when we think that the world is hopeless and there's no true hope? Some people believe that the problem is the product. And so they look for a better, better product that will give them a greater promise of hope. Maybe they look for a better house or a better job. Maybe it's a better spouse or a better friend, a better game, a better hobby, constantly looking for bigger, better, badder, something that will satisfy our desires. Others might say the problem is our personal practice. And so we have to work harder. We haven't worked hard enough. We need to work harder. We need to run faster. We need to climb higher, and then we will get what we hope for. Others have given up on hope altogether. And this is a sad reality among many families in these neighborhoods. They live day in and day out utterly hopeless without any bit and glimmer of hope. 
They've moved from this belief that there is no hope to be found. The problem is our perspective. We must give up on hope. There is no real hope in the world, just a pessimistic expectation of doom and gloom. C.S. Lewis calls this person the disillusioned but sensible man. He learns not to expect much and represses the part of himself which used to cry for the moon. Have you given up crying for the moon? Is your life characterized by hopelessness? We must not look for hope in things with holes. Many of us live our lives drinking out of a glass with holes on the bottom, and we wonder why we're not satisfied in life. Everything we look to to satisfy in this life will ultimately die out, diminish, and leave us utterly deluded and spoiled with no real lasting hope. C.S. Lewis says that if we find in ourselves a desire for that which no experience in this world can satisfy, the only conclusion must be that we are made for another world. These earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy our eternal hunger. Rather, they were meant to arouse our satisfaction, to suggest the real thing. You see, we should be thankful for these earthbound blessings, but we should never mistake the copy for the real thing, the echo for the real song, the mirage for the real object. Peter says that true hope is not found in grasping for things on earth which are fleeting, but in receiving life from the King of heaven. 1 Peter 1.3 spells out the message of hope. According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You see, the reason for our hope in the face of death is based on resurrection. We believe that though Jesus died for our sin, he resurrected with an eternal body. We must declare to a world that is despairing in death that there is one who overcame death. There is one who defeated death and gives eternal life. We must declare to the world that in Jesus Christ, there is a hope that will not die out. It will not diminish. It will not be diluted. This imperishable, undefiled, and unfading hope kept in heaven is coming here back to this earth. Jesus will resurrect the world as his very body was resurrected, bringing eternal happiness, joy, and new life. C.S. Lewis suggests that we must keep alive in ourselves and our neighbors the desire for that country. They will only receive it after death, but we must stir one another up. We must make it our main object in life to press on to that country, to help others to do the same. This eternal glory of a resurrected world and our resurrected bodies will come about when Jesus is revealed. When he comes back to this sin-marked world filled with suffering and brings relief and release in the, his final return, a real hope demands a ready defense. We live it in our lives and we speak it with our lips. But how do we speak out this hope? Peter then tells us how to communicate this hope and he gives us the manner of our defense. We often spend so much time focusing on what to say that we miss how we say it. The table rules or the manners for speaking out this hope are twofold. God calls us to speak out this hope with gentleness and respect. And the reality is the manner that we speak 
also communicates the message. There are some times where we speak about the hope of Christ that we demean people, that we ultimately distract them from the message and even distort the core of our message. And so what does it look like for us to speak this hope in a way that is gentle and respectful? Well, this is especially important when people are against us, when people come at us with harsh words, when they mock us as Christians and they throw out our message about a risen person as ridiculous. We feel justified in being cruel and mean and rude. But believers, that is not what Christ would have us to do. We must heed the words of Proverbs 26, 1 through 2. And this is a little bit of a riddle, so pay close attention. He says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Should we answer the fool according to his folly or should we not? Well, here's what the text is saying. Imagine you come across a person who is evidently a fool. And he comes to you showing off their foolish beliefs, their foolish words, and their foolish ways. And you want to give them a word of wisdom. You want to speak hope into their life. God may call you to communicate the gospel to this foolish person. The fool not only shows his foolishness in his beliefs, but also in his actions. Solomon calls us not to answer this fool according to his folly. We should not practice his foolish ways or use his foolish communication styles. If we do, we'll be like him ourselves. But we must defend this hope as we talk to this fool. Not with harsh tones, not with arrogant pride, not with name-calling or any other manner of foolish speaking. We must share the hope and correct the error in thinking but not like the fool. If we don't respond, this deceived fool will continue in his error. So we must declare. He'll be like the person in Proverbs 14, 11 through 12, who built a strong house only for it to be destroyed. If we don't declare the truth of the gospel, then they will be like the person on the right path, it seems, but it leads to death and destruction. But we must share the message in a manner consistent with the message. This manner is, first of all, gentle. This means that we are not to be overly harsh, pushy, and imposing as we share hope. Acts, uh, 2 Timothy 2, 20-26 tells us we must not be quarrelsome with our opponents. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. We don't leave the fool in his folly, but we don't beat the folly out of the fool with harshness and meanness. No, we correct with gentleness. We must share this message with humility. This manner of humble sharing is not simply a kind gesture, but it points to the humble Savior who has died for our sins. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant, even humbling himself to die on the cross. And so we must speak in a manner that is gentle. We share it with gentleness also because we're no better than them. I mean, whatever happened to us Christians when we start believing that we are better, more moral, more able to earn God's favor, His eye, and His love because we're Christians? Don't you realize, Christian, that you need Jesus just as much as them? Don't you realize that we are sinful beggars crying out for salvation that only Jesus can provide? You see, Jesus was the one who paid the bill of our sin, which we could not pay ourselves. He did this to make us debt-free. He became poor that we might become rich. Jesus bore our sin that we might wear Jesus' righteous record. 
Jesus lowered himself to save us and to exalt us as we stand on his foundation. We have no room to pridefully jab non-Christians and to bully them into believing some hope as inferior nobodies. We are in the same water and need the same rescue. Secondly, we must defend this hope with respect. Earlier, Peter has said that when we suffer for righteousness' sake, we should have no fear of them or be troubled. This word for not fearing them is actually the same word for respecting people as we share this hope. In the previous verse, it's very clear that fear is referencing to something they might do to harm us or something they might say to hurt us. We must not fear to the point of being troubled. This fear can paralyze us. It can keep us silent and unwilling to defend the hope of the gospel. But Peter cannot be saying that we should be afraid of this person. Rather, he says to fear them, to respect them. Now, when the Bible calls us to positively fear someone, it's saying to have a profound respect and awe for that person. It is often used in reference to fearing God. So Peter cannot be saying here that we must fear this man as if he were a god. That was the problem earlier. So then what is he saying? You know, there is a fitting respect for man because he is made in the image of God. We honor God by respecting God's creation, especially his image bearers. So a proper fear of God demands a personal respect for humans. James calls out disrespectful use of the tongue in his book. He says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. We sing praises to God because of his glory and his awe. But with that same tongue, we use it to curse people who are made in the image of God. We bless the Lord with our tongue because we believe that God is worthy of our praise. We believe that God is a reverence, set-apart being, that he is glorious in everything. But then how can we trash a God-made person with those same words? If we bless the Lord because he is worthy of respect, should we not honor the person made in his likeness and his image? This is what Peter is communicating to us. We share the hope with people in a way that respects their dignity as image bearers of God. Paul illustrates this beautifully when he defends this hope with the Athenians. As Paul walked throughout Athens, he was provoked within him as he saw the city full of idols. He was greatly concerned because these people have placed all their hope in false gods. He knows the sorrows of those who run after another god will multiply. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And when he sees these people, he is grieved and moved to compassion to share the true God, the real God, and real hope. He was provoked to the point of persuasion. He did not devalue them by name-calling or stating the worst about their religion, but rather he sought to build a respectful bridge. He acknowledged their religious interests. They tried to cover all the bases of religion by erecting an altar to an unknown God. He acknowledged their desire to connect with this transcendent God and also their confusion about how to relate to them. He then clarified the gospel by using aspects of their own cultural knowledge in his presentation. He honored their culture but called them to Christ. If we are to defend this hope with respect, we must not mock people of their belief system. And we must not make fun of them. We must take the time to learn why they believe what they believe. And as we do this, we should look for ways to connect their cultural story 
to the story of the gospel. For instance, if you're talking with someone from a different religious perspective, you will find out who or what they worship. You will find out what they believe about human purpose or struggle. You will find out how they resolve human guilt. They may worship a false god, have a distorted view of human nature, and an inadequate guilt solution. But we must begin by affirming their desire to worship, to restore humanity, to rid of guilt. And then we must correct and declare the goodness of the gospel, that our gracious God restores glorious but ruined sinners through the sacrificial and guilt-bearing death of Jesus, our Savior. A real hope demands a ready defense. No matter how gentle and respectful we may be when we defend this hope, we still will suffer. Peter says it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Our opponents have their own goal of causing us to suffer, but God has a plan in the midst of it also. In our suffering, God has called us to declare this good news of the gospel, and those whom we declare this to will be put to shame, and also he has called us to show Christ's sacrifice. As we suffer in our defending of the message, our opponent will be put to shame. Our persecutors seek to discourage us so much that we would give up our faith and silence our voice. This is the goal of persecution and opposition. It seeks to bring out the worst in the Christian so that he will contradict and discredit the message. He tries to bring him in and coax him into the ring that he might fight back. But when we respond to suffering with love rather than hate, we become like a mirror exposing the shameful actions of our opponents. Here, Peter is not saying shame is the intended purpose of our declaration, but the natural result as they see their actions of shame. Their hateful actions are shown in their hate-filled, evil, and dead hearts. They are confronted with their own corruption and condemnation. Seeing the shame of their actions is that they will eventually be silenced. You see, 1 Peter 2.15 says, For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. They are silenced because they see not only the ugliness of their own hate, but the beauty of Christian love. During the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King Jr. and others modeled before us what it looks like to suffer for good. They called people not to humiliate the opponent, but to win their friendship and understanding. Martin Luther King Jr. says that the nonviolent resistor must often express his protest through non-cooperation or boycotts, but he realizes that these are not the ends in themselves. They are a means to awaken a sense of moral shame in the opponent. The end is redemption and reconciliation. The aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of a beloved community. But the aftermath of violence is tragic bitterness. You see, when we suffer for doing good, we not only function as a mirror that exposes, but as, a, as a, a window for them to see through, to see the sacrificial love of our Savior. Our hope is that they will see the depth of their hatred, that they would repent, and that they would trust in the love of our Savior Jesus. We hope that the shame will end in redemption and reconciliation and the creation of a beloved community that trusting in Jesus, they might learn to love as Jesus loved. Loving our enemy can make lovers of our enemies. You see, hope is a dangerous thing. 
In the movie Shawshank Redemption, one of the prisoners was sent to solitary confinement for playing classical music throughout the prison. When asked if this was worth it for him to play the music in the prison, it was told to him, and, and he said, I never had a quicker time than I had in that two weeks. It was the easiest time I ever had. He said that while he was in that prison cell, he had Mr. Mozart there to keep him company. You see, he loved classical music, and the memory of that music stirred his heart with hope in the face of this suffering. And this is our hope also. You see, believers in Christ, the music of the gospel so stirs our heart with hope that no matter the suffering we face, we have a hope that will never be taken away from us. This sweet music of the gospel that Jesus is bringing hope to a hurting world compels us, it moves us, it stays within our heart and sends us out on mission. And so do not forget this song, believers. Do not forget, but keep this hope alive in your heart and share this hope with your lips. A real hope demands a ready defense. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have come to bring a real hope. Oh Lord, it is so hard to share, to defend, to declare this hope into a world that is so hopeless. We pray, oh God, that you would move us by the gospel, that we'd hear the sweet music of Jesus in our hearts, that we would go out into our neighborhoods and say, the hope has come. He has come in a man, and that man died, and he was buried, and he rose again, and that man is coming to return to this earth. Move us by your spirit to do this to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.